Faith Memorial Church was founded in 1945 as Cleveland Evangelistic Center. A lot has changed since then, but one thing hasn't. Faith Memorial Church's passion for Christ and compassion for the people of our community. All right. So you guys know we're going to continue our series, The Signs of a Healthy Church. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to end up in Isaiah 20 or Isaiah 29. That's right. Isaiah 29. That's where I'm going to end up. But I'm going to start with our blueprint in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And this message is going to be a little weird. (laughs) As if every message I preach isn't weird. This message is going to be a little bit weird, and I'm really hoping that it all just meshes together and makes sense to you. Um, I'm going to be preaching on worship this morning. So that's the fourth sign of a healthy church. We've went through several already. The fourth sign of a healthy church, I'll just tell you that right up front, is a posture of worship. Posture of worship. And yes, that that phrase is important. Don't just put worship because you're going to miss it if you just put worship. Posture of worship. That's the fourth sign of a healthy church. And I got to tell you guys, I've said this every week, but I'm going to say it again, and I may say it next week too, and you're just going to have to get over it or forgive me. But every message in this series isn't what I thought it was going to be. It's like, it is, but it's not. And it's, it's so difficult to explain that. But when I, I felt God leading me to have and to preach this series, Signs of a Healthy Church, I knew the passage and I went there. And so I laid out these eight signs of a healthy church. Yes, there's eight. I laid out eight signs of a healthy church. And I was like, okay, this is going to be the series and it's going to be great. But as I've been looking at them and praying through them, God has been changing it. And it's not that I was wrong, per se, But I had an idea in my mind of what a healthy church looked like. And I'm sure you have an idea in your mind about what a healthy church looks like. But as God began to show me what a healthy church is, what it really is, I began to realize how not so healthy my idea was. And I don't mean that my idea of a healthy church was actually unhealthy. I just mean that it wasn't as healthy as what God's idea of a healthy church was. Now don't hear me saying that I have now become the sum total of all wisdom and knowledge on healthy church, and I know all there is to know because I don't. What I'm saying is God has like brought me into a deeper dimension of what it is to be a healthy church, and I know more than I did. And hopefully tomorrow I'll know more than I know today. But let me give you a picture, if that's okay. I was reading this book by C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorites of all time. He's a genius, was a genius. But anyway, he wrote this book towards the end of his life, and it's called Until We Have Faces. It's not one of his most popular ones because it's really kind of strange and weird. But he took this pagan myth of Cupid and Psyche, and he rewrote it. And that's what it's called, Until We Have Faces, a myth retold. He rewrote the book. I rewrote the myth. And instead of telling it from Psyche's perspective, he told it from her sister's perspective. And the whole point was, is he changed Cupid into the embodiment of Jesus, and he turned it into this Christian allegory. And it's really complex and kind of fantastic. But there's there's this scene in the book, and Oral, that's the sister's name, terrible name, Oral thinks that Psyche is dead. She thinks that she has been eaten, ravaged by scavenging animals. She thinks that she's dead. So she goes looking for her. And she comes into this valley and she sees Psyche on the other side of the stream. And she's blown away because she's alive, first of all. But then she starts talking to her and Psyche tells her that she had an experience with the divine. That she encountered a god. And the way that she describes this is she says, look, it's not a dream. No dream could ever be that real or that fantastic. She says, but I need to, he was like a man, but he was so much more than a man. He said, it's like this. Have you ever seen someone that's healthy, 
and then put like someone that has leprosy next to them? How does it make the healthy person look? It makes them look healthier than ever, right? It makes them look better and more healthy than they've ever been or looked on their own. The compare and contrast makes them look even healthier. And she said, next to the divine, we are like lepers next to us. Because it's, it's the same, but it's so much more. And that's kind of like what this series has been doing to me, is it's the same, but it's so much more. Now, in the story, Oral can't see any of it. Psyche's standing there, and she's dressed in this elaborate wedding gown, and she has this chalice full of this rich wine, and Oral sees her in rags, doesn't see the cup, thinks the wine is water in Psyche's hands, and they're standing in front of this elaborate palace, and Oral can't see any of it. And she writes Psyche off as being mentally unstable. And the whole scene reminds me of this passage in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is praying and he talks to God and the Father and he says, glorify your name. And God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And it's a booming, earthquaking, shattering voice. And there's groups of people around and one group of people says it thundered. And another group of people say it was an angel. And Jesus and his followers know that it was the voice of the Father. Now, were the people that said it thundered wrong? No, not necessarily, because God's voice does sound like thunder in the Bible everywhere also. Even in the Revelation song, his voice rolls like thunder. God thunders from heaven. So they had an understanding of a surface, superficial idea of what was going on, and it wasn't technically incorrect, but it took something sacred, a kairos moment, and it reduced it to something commonplace. And the other group of people that thought it was an angel, they knew that it wasn't just thunder. They knew that there was more depth to it and that something holy or sacred was going on, but they didn't know that it was God and they didn't know that it wasn't God, so they just kind of said it was an angel. It was something other than. And then you had the people who actually knew what was going on and knew that it was the voice of God the Father. So you had these different dimensions and understandings of the same reality. Look, I knew that there was such a thing as a healthy and an unhealthy church. And I knew that the foundation was laid in Jesus Christ. But I did not make the connection that Jesus Christ is the fear of the Lord and that he is the beginning of wisdom. And that that makes the fear of the Lord the foundation as well. I knew that the truth was kind of the framework that the church was built upon. But I didn't understand the dimension of humility and love in that. And I would have defined devotion to the truth as reading and doing it. And I would have left it off at that. I would not have realized that it has to go to the third dimension of loving the truth. It's not just learning and living. It's learning, living, and loving the truth. I would have taught fellowship from the perspective of missional communities. I have taught fellowship from the perspective of missional communities and small groups and having lunch together. I would not have realized the necessity for setting the structure up correctly. Everything about this series has been, I understood, but I didn't know the depth that it could go. And so I was kind of like oral sitting there and having a commonplace understanding of something sacred. And we do that a lot in church, don't we? We're going to keep your mind on that. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Dimensions of reality. Because we're going to come back to that as we talk to wor- about worship. I'm trying not to jump to the end right here at the beginning. I'm just trying to lay a framework for where we're going. So I'm going to read Acts 42 through 47 and pick out two phrases. It starts off this way. It says, they, being the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
The two expressions I want to grab are they were filled with awe or they were filled with wonder. Some translations say they were filled with awestruck wonder. That's the first phrase. And the second phrase is they were praising God. The reason I want both is because I want you to understand one thing about worship is it can't just be external and it can't just be internal. It has to be both, internal and external. See, something was going on inside of them. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with awe. There was an overwhelming occurrence or experience going on inside of them that was producing the praise. It was both. And that's why I use the word posture. Because the word posture, listen, you guys may know I love words. I like the etymology of words. The word posture actually can simultaneously mean an internal attitude or position as well as a physical stance. I can be relaxed on my couch watching football eating Cheetos and have a relaxed posture while simultaneously having an aggressive posture towards liberal politics. I mean, you can be both simultaneously because posture can refer to the internal state of being as well as the physical position of your body. And worship refers to both. Does that make sense? Now here's some funny stuff. Let's add on to that a little bit. Posture, when it's taken and used as a verb, posturing, means to act or to carry out an impression. Like Robert Downey Jr. postures as Iron Man. That's where we get the word imposter from. And everybody here knows what imposter means. Somebody that's faking it or pretending to be something that they're not. And when you tie this back to worship, we have a lot of imposters in worship. We have a lot of people that are producing the outward act of worship, and there's nothing internal going on. Now, when I talk about worship, I told you we were going to be very pastoral during this series, and we were going to define everything. So when I talk about worship, I want you to understand that I am not talking about praise and I'm not talking about prayer now here's the difference praise and prayer are pieces of the pie look in the Hebrew there's seven debatably nine words for worship in the Greek there's two used primarily but there may be a couple more all of those express a piece of the pie but Aristotle said this, he said, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so when we're talking about worship, we're not talking about all the individual pieces of the pie added together. We're talking about the whole thing. And worship is the overarching word, the big tent that includes all of these individual pieces in it. And so when we say worship, what we're actually talking about is a preoccupation with God alone. A preoccupation with God. A focus on the person of God. A fascination with God. Worship is derived from the English word worth-ship. Meaning that we are ascribing worth to the person that we are paying observance to. Or homage to. Or the person that we are giving our devotion to. We are saying that they are worth our time and our song and our energy. Worship is a fixation on the person of God. Now, praise is a preoccupation with the things that God has done, is doing, or will do. We praise God. God, you filled my bank account and paid my rent on time. Thank you. That's praise. That's praise. God, you healed me. You are healing me. You will heal me. That's praise. Now, if you take praise to its logical conclusion, it will always lead you to worship. Because you cannot think about the things God has done, is doing, or will do without thinking about the one who has the character and the nature that makes him want to do those things or capable of doing those things. So if you follow praise through to its conclusion, it will end in worship and a fixation on the person of God. The same is true with prayer. Prayer is a preoccupation with a need or blessing. 
And if you think about your needs of yourself or someone else for long enough, eventually you will come to the one who has the power and the will to make and to meet those needs. Prayer and praise are not worship in themselves. They are pieces that lead to worship. And I've always said if you take praise and you take prayer to their extreme end, they will be indistinguishable from worship because they will become a fixation on God. But a lot of times what we do is we kind of like if you picture praise and prayer as like an interstate and you're going down the interstate to get to worship, it's like a lot of times we jump off three or four exits too early. We go to prayer and we have our grocery list of requests and we make all of our needs known to God and then we walk away. Or we come to church and we sing songs like, you know, I don't know what's a... the only one that's coming to my mind is Jesus on the main line. Tell him what you want. I don't know why, but that's the only song that's coming to my mind. But we come to church and we'll sing songs about the things that God has done and his greatness and his, all of this stuff. And we fail to let it lead us to a place to where we just get completely fixated on him for who he is alone, him. And I said this before we started, worship is about God's presence, not our preference. And when we get sidetracked with all these debates about things that we like or how we want the music to go, or I want two fast songs and two slow songs, or I want one fast song and then three slow songs so that way I can generate an emotional response, we are missing the point. And here's the question I have to ask, who is worship for? Is it for us or is it for God? Because if it's for God, when is the last time, church, that we asked God what He wanted in worship? When is the last time we said, God, what songs do you want sung to you today? God, what songs do you want to hear? Or God, what about this one? God, do you even want music today? God, do you just want us to skip the songs and to worship you in another way? Or God, do you want us to put the preaching first and put the songs at the end? When's the last time we left church and we said, God, did that make you happy? No, we leave church and we say, man, I like two of those songs in worship. But that third one, I think she missed that key just a little bit. Or that really wasn't her key. (laughs) I mean, she did pretty good in the A and the C. But man, when she hit that D, she was like, ooh. Or, man, that preacher, he was going pretty good, but man, he preached for an hour and 15 minutes. I really can't hold it past 45. Wait, I'm serious. Or he only preached 40 minutes, and I was hoping. I, I, my money said I needed an hour of sermon today. Like, why don't we... Why don't we leave church and we ask God what his opinion was? Let me be honest. Has any of you in the last six months left a church service and said, God, did that make you happy? Did that bless your heart? Were you pleased with that? No, because we just assume God's a mathematical equation and whatever we're doing, if we slap his name on the side of it, then he's good with it. Oh, the Bible says sing and play instruments. We're doing that. Check. Listen, I like music. But to be honest, there's some days I don't want to hear music. Some days I just want silence. And I love silence. But to be honest, some days I like it loud. Some days I like fast songs. Some days I like slow songs. Some days I like hymns. Some days I don't. Because I'm a person that has preferences and desires that are a part of my personality. And guess what? We are made in the image of God, and that personality is not part of the fall. There's aspects of it that are. But that personality is because you're made in the image of God, and he has things that he likes and that he desires too. And it's our job to be cognizant enough and aware enough of God that we ask him what he wants rather than just assuming and living our lives and just believing God's good with it. He's God. He says two plus two, he always equals four. He's God. I'm going to turn 
to one of the scariest passages in Scripture, in my opinion. Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 16, absolutely terrify me. They terrify me. Let's read, and then I'll explain why, and you can choose to be terrified or not. Verse 1. B- by the way, I don't know what translation you got. Ariel is Lion of God. It re- uh, means Jerusalem. It's the city of David. So just throw that out there. It's not talking about the little mermaid. <laughs> Woe to you, little mermaid. No. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Where's Claire at? <laughs> She'd be like, no, Ariel. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, Ursula's preaching today. <laughs> God help me. Woo. That's the message translation is what that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me. Help me out of this hole that I'm digging. Help me. <laughs> sorry, Eugene. Anyway. All right. (laughs) Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust. The ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise. With windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. As when a hungry person dreams of eating but awakens hungry still. As when a thirsty person dreams of drinking but awakens faint and thirsty still. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your head, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who can't read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, this people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? This is one of the most terrifying passages in Scripture. I think I've already said that. And it's not because of the army. Look, this was written... um, 7, 16, somewhere around in there. Hezekiah is ruler over Judah, the cap, or over J- Judah at the capital, Jerusalem. The upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, had already been taken into Assyrian captivity. And the Assyrians are threatening in on the southern kingdom. This is the armies that are being talked about. Is there is trouble. Not just a spiritual, like there is a literal armies that are about to take over. They have already conquered the northern kingdom. This is what's here. And that has nothing to do with what I want to talk about. I just want you to understand, like, this is an actual, literal situation going on. And the words that God uses or speaks through the prophet absolutely blow my mind. Because right there in the, second, or in the first verse, he says this. He says, add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Your festivals, your feast, your acts of worship, because that's what they are, your traditions, your man-taught rules, just let them go on year to year, month after month, just keep doing the same thing because it doesn't mean anything anyway. That's what's being said here. Look, 
the, the circumstances change. You're surrounded by all these foreign armies. You're about to be conquered. The situation is dire. But don't let, your, don't let urgency come into your gatherings. Don't let your heart get, get besieged. Just keep going. Keep doing the same thing. Keep going through the motions. Keep up the tradition. Keep up the routine. And just let, be ritualistic about it. Let nothing change. Month after month, year after year, just do the same thing that you've always done because that's what you're going to do anyway because nothing can move you. God ain't in it. Keep doing it. Keep singing the same songs. Keep playing the same instruments. Keep doing the same number. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. No matter what the situation is. Don't read the signs of the times. Don't let nothing affect the way you do what you do. Just keep doing the same thing every single week. Week in and week out. Month after month. Year after year. Just let the cycle go on. The cycle. The rotation. Just let it go on. Keep ending at the same place you started. Never making any progress. Look, I don't care how great of a hiker you are. If you're out in the woods and you keep going in circles, you're never going to gain any ground. I know that much. Not a huge hiker, but I know that if you're in the woods and you're going in circles, you're not gaining any new ground. That's what's going on. God isn't in their festivals. He hasn't been for a long time, but they don't care. Just keep doing it. It's our party. Just let it go on and on and on. Same songs. <laughs> Why update? Why change? We like this. It's like we have a party and we send God like an afterthought invitation. Like, hey, we're having this party. If you can come, cool. But if not, it's okay. We're still going to have a good time. I mean, seriously. A lot of churches, if God never shows up in the church, they wouldn't know. They've taken entertainment and replaced it, God. And we've gotten so fancy, and our musicians have gotten so talented, and our technology has gotten so good that we can control everything and get everything exactly the way that we want it, and it doesn't matter if God shows up or not. I think about the old Methodists when they had, like, no heaters, and they had, like, burning, like, they had these, like, tubs or barrels, and they would, like, burn fires in the middle of their church just to stay warm. And they'd gather around that singing hymns, knowing that they could be killed. People didn't want their spouses to become Methodist ministers because they knew that it was a death sentence. And then I think about us. It's like get in my air-conditioned or heated car to drive to my air-conditioned or heated church to sit down on my padded and comfortable seat to stand and hear some songs that I like that are just at the right volume so that that way it doesn't hurt my ears and I can hear it well and I've got the words on the screen so that I don't really have to think about what I'm saying. I can just regurgitate what's being presented to me. It's just the cycle goes on. Trump in the White House, Biden in the White House, whoever comes next in the White House, it doesn't matter, the cycle goes on. War in Russia and the Ukraine, doesn't matter, the cycle goes on. Just cycle, on and on and on, and we're just at the same spot we've been at for the last hundred years, and it's like, what is going on? And I'm not, I'm not, like, look... It, I'm not taking a club and beating you guys with it. Even people watching out here, what I'm saying is like, if there is something that is wrong, how can we keep using the same recipe and hoping to get a different result? Like we can't keep walking in a circle and expecting something to be different. This go round. Look, you, you walk in a circle, you're going to see the same things lap after lap after lap and you can't suddenly say okay this third lap now I'm going to see something different no you're going to see the same things you saw every single lap before and guess what I don't care if you're on your 552nd lap you're still going to see the same things on your 553rd lap it's just going to be this it's a cycle on and on and on and on and if you follow the flow of worship through this because we're not done and look if you're mad about this message I didn't say it the word did be mad at God not me when it, when it goes on, he says, your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. 
your voice will come ghost-like. Do you know what a ghost is? It is a projection of something that used to be alive. It is an image of something that used to have life, that used to have body and substance and vitality, but now it's nothing more than a shadow or a see-through specter that some people can see, some people can't, and you have your little episodes where people are shaking the camera like, ooh, I feel something scary in here. Like, that's, that's a ghost. Like, and he's saying, your voice, it's coming up from the earth like something that used to have life. Like something that used to have meaning. Now it's just a shadow of its former self. And guess what? Just like you can see through ghosts, God sees right through that. And when he gets down here, the prophet gets down to verse 9. It kind of equates it to this, like the whole picture of worship and the flow of the passage. It's like you're, you're, you're stunned, you know, like in, in boxing. I love boxing. And boxing, <laughs> you like boxing too? I love boxing. Like, come on, Thrilla in Manila, let's go. I love boxing. The old boxing, like I like UFC too, but it's not as good. Okay, it's not. I like old toe-to-toe heavyweight boxing. That's, that's my jam. But one of the things about boxing is I don't care how big you are. If you can't connect with the other person, you are going to lose. And anyone that boxes will tell you this. The jab that comes before the haymaker is the most dangerous punch in boxing. Because what it does is it stuns you for just a second and makes you unable to anticipate what's coming. When someone throws a left jab before they come with the right haymaker or vice versa, that's why southpaws are so dangerous is because people are usually anticipating the jab from the left, but their jab comes from the right. The jab stuns you before the haymaker so you can't anticipate and respond to it. God says, be stunned. Be amazed. You're walking around like someone that's blind. You're walking around like someone that's staggering because they're drunk. You're walking around like you're asleep or altogether unconscious. And it's all because of worship. Follow the context of the passage through. It's because of worship. The result of not having appropriate worship is having a church that can't hear from God. The church that walks around like they're blind, like they're stunned, like they're drunk. And they, even if you have the word of God right here written out on a scroll and you say, will you read this to me? They can't read it. They don't know how. Oh, sure, they can put the words together and say, but they don't know what it means. Because they're blind. They're unconscious spiritually. The prophets can't see. The seers can't know. You hold the scroll in front of them and say, read this, and they'll say, I can't, it's sealed. Oh, I can read it, but I can't interpret it. Or read this, I can't, I don't know how to read. And that's the product of a church that doesn't have worship. That's why we have all these false doctrines, is because church loses worship, and then everything else gets befuddled as a result. Look, we've been carrying through this metaphor of building a house, right? Right? The church is a house, the house of God, and we've been carrying through the metaphor, you know, the fear of the Lord's the foundation, the vision is the roof, the word is the walls, and then, you know, the fellowship is the, the family room, and the culture of generosity is like the general aesthetic of the entire house. Worship, a posture of worship is like the master bedroom. It's a place of intimacy, connection. And I don't care... I'm not talking about, let's use a big word, I'm not talking about sex. Am I allowed to say that behind the pulpit? I don't care. I am anyway. I'm not talking about that. There is an intimacy that goes so far beyond that. Ask people that are truly in love. That's nothing compared to the depths of intimacy that you can go to. Now imagine a family where the master bedroom has no connection and no intimacy. It's not healthy. 
and the marriage and the, the relationship crumbles and falls apart. It doesn't matter if sex is involved or not. If there's no intimacy beyond that, it will inevitably crush and crumble and fall apart. We have the physical act of singing and lifting our hands and bowing on our faces, but there's no intimacy beyond that, and it's falling apart at the seams. And God identifies this. He says, listen, he says, this people, they come near to me with their mouth. But their hearts, they're far from me. And you know what Jesus says? He picks up this scripture. You know what he says? He says, guess what? Isaiah prophesied well about you. He says this was, out of all the books in the Old Testament, out of all the things that were said, Jesus grabs some of them, and this is one of the things he grabs, and he holds it to the religious leaders. He says, guess what, Jesus, or guess what, guys? Isaiah, when he said this, he was talking about you. It's like a punch in the throat. You stand near to me. Listen. I can stand next to my wife all day long, but if there's no intimacy there, that means nothing. Imagine, imagine that people that you love, I'm going to use my kids for an example. My kids come up to me and they say all the right things and they have all the right words, but there's never any sincerity to it. You know how devastating that is? It's like, oh yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Can you imagine if that was the way Peter responded to Jesus? Peter, do you love me? Yeah, 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 I love you. I think that conversation would have went a little bit differently if that would have been the case. There has to be something more, like some substance behind it. Not just singing the right songs, not just raising the hands, not just falling on your face, not just dancing and running and having a good time. Those things are cool and I love every one of them. But I'm saying like that can't be all there is. There has to be more to worship than just a physical response or just an outward response. I don't care if we say the right things. He says they say the right things. They're near to me with their mouth. They come in my house and say the right things. But their hearts aren't in it. Their hearts aren't in it. You know, I just... Do we... Do you get that? That God is literally... You know... Most rulers, most kings, they're okay with lip service. Like, you know, I pledge allegiance. You know, like they, they're okay with like the lip service. As long as you're doing the right thing, as long as you're saying the right thing, they don't care what you're thinking or feeling. As long as you're falling into their line. But God isn't like that. He don't care. You know, I think sometimes God would rather you be like mistaken about where the line's at and have a heart after him than to be in line and have a heart far from him. I mean, think about all the mistakes that David made, and he was the one that was called a man after God's own heart. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> I love you, God, but he's not exactly a good role model in a lot of areas. I mean, I don't think adultery and murder <laughs> and di downright disobedience are good things to try to emulate here. But man, David knew how to repent, and he knew how to pour it out to God, and he knew how to say, God, you're what I want. I make all the mistakes in the world, but God, I come back and I want you. It wasn't just there with lips being near to him. Think about a conversation I had not long ago. <laughs> Faith was there, but we had a conversation. And in the conversation, the people that we were talking to, the, it was kind of like, well, I've never really had a season of rebellion from God. And my response, you know, it was Holy Ghost prompted because he's cool like that. My response was, you do realize that religiosity and legalism is just as much as rebellion as going out and doing drugs and being an alcoholic and running from God. In fact, it's a little bit more so because you're standing next to him while you're in rebellion. 
And that's what a lot of us do is we're in the right place saying the right things, but our hearts in defiance and in rebellion from God. Let's keep going. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. Man, if there is any verse in the Bible that sums up the condition of church worship in our day, this is it. And I, d- I say that with a smile on my face, but I, it's one of those nervous smiles. <laughs> because the people that this was being written to and the people that Jesus said that, this, that resembled this, they thought they were doing it right. That's why this is the most terrifying passage. Because they thought they were doing it right. I mean, can you, you're sitting there and you're going through your life and you're keeping the law and you're keeping your festivals and you're, you're dictating what you eat based on what God says. I mean, you can't have bacon for God's sake. Like, I mean, that, that is, like, you can't have bacon. I mean, that's a sacrifice. Look, I sacrifice for the Lord, but I mean, giving up bacon, <laughs> like, they deserve a gold medal in heaven. But, but you're sitting there and you're like, everything about your life is dictated according to this. And you find out you're doing it wrong. You find out that you're nowhere near where God wants you to be. I mean, how difficult is that church? Because here's the thing, if that was true of the Pharisees in Jesus' day who were trying to bring back the law to prominence, who were trying to work the law and building up these traditions and trying to impose that on the people, like they were trying. And yeah, there were a few bad nuts in them, there always is, they're people. But they were trying to be zealous for God's law. And they find out they're doing it wrong. If that's true of them, Don't you think there's a remote possibility that it's true of us? You know, I wonder sometimes, and I just ask God sometimes, like, God, come down and just, you know, I I know this is terrible, but, like, have coffee with me, Lord, and tell me what, what I need to do. Because, you know, sitting here and, like, trying to, to figure it out, like, there's some joy in that. But there's some terror in that, too. And that's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't just assume that because that's what's always been done, that's what always needs to be done. Sometimes we have to rethink things a little bit. Sometimes things change from generation to generation. And sometimes we get so caught up in things that don't matter because of our preference. And it's like, what are we trying to accomplish here? What is God wanting us to do? Because after all, worship is supposed to be about Him. And if you go all the way down, I'll skip, I'll skip down and I'll, I'll work towards bringing this towards a close. In verse 16, it says this. It says, you turn things upside down. Can the pot say to the potter, you didn't make me? Say, you don't know nothing? That's some good southern for you. You don't know nothing. We have flipped the role of sovereignty in the American church. We have made ourselves sovereign. We have meetings to decide how we are going to spend the money. We sit down and we determine what songs are going to be. We sell I mean, this is the one that gets me, and I, I've brought this up before, but we literally create PowerPoints and slides and sermon notes and then sell them and say, hey, pastors, use this in your church. And I'm like, quit. <laughs> I'm serious. I know that people say that's harsh, but I'm like, if you cannot get before God and have him give you a sermon to preach to your congregation, hang up the phone and turn in your resignation. 
Because you ain't supposed to be there anyway. And you're in the way for someone who is. It's the same thing. Like we have people like up on stage that are musically talented and we think because they can play an instrument that they're supposed to be up there. And it's like they don't, they don't worship. They don't even know what worship is, but they're playing because they're not good enough to get a job in the secular industry. They write Christian songs and try to get an easy route in. And we let them. Tell me I'm lying. Because I could start naming, I'm not going to, because I could, but I could start naming names of people that are in the Christian music industry and are played on Christian radio, and I know they don't know more know Jesus than a man on the moon. And it's not because I'm being judgmental, I'm just looking at the fruit. But it's easier because our standards are lower. They should be higher, they absolutely should be higher. But we've turned things upside down. We've made man sovereign and we've put God down here. And you know, that, that phrase, it's like, he's not going to know. It's because we operate with a practical atheism. <laughs> That's true. We come and we worship God, but we live our lives like we're atheists a lot of times. And I hate it. And I'm not beating up on you guys. I'm just saying something's got to change. I don't know what. <laughs> I can tell you this, a couple of things that I do know. There's, there's a thing in theology, and it's called arguing the negative. And basically what it means is that you can say what God is not. It's difficult to say what he is in certain areas, so you say what he's not. God is immutable. He's not changeable. You guys kind of get that idea? So in a, we're looking at a posture of worship. I can say what a healthy church is not. A healthy church is not where man is sovereign over the worship service. A healthy church is not where everything is external only. A healthy church is not where man picks the songs and we determine the tempo and we determine which songs are sung and why and we determine the order of the service. That is not a healthy church. A healthy church is not people that are more concerned about their preference than God's presence. You see where I'm getting at? All the things that we've went through, a healthy church is not those things. So if we know what a healthy church is not, it begins to help us more define what a posture of worship in a healthy church looks like. And the one thing that I can say is it's surrender. An internal and an external posture of surrender. Look, going back to the way that I started this about the dimensions of reality, people can come in and they can say, oh yeah, the church is singing. And it's true, the church is singing. But that is a very commonplace description of what the church is doing when they're singing or what the church is supposed to be doing when they're singing and then someone else comes in and says well they're worshiping a god that is also true but they're only parts of reality and when you leave it at that it becomes almost offensive to the people that are actually engaged in the furthest depth of reality which means they are paying and surrendering everything in that moment to god what has a sacred moment to the casual observer looks something like commonplace and church, we have a choice. We can be the people standing on the outside looking and not even seeing that proverbial palace like oral. And we don't see the gown and we don't see the palace and we don't see the chalice and we can't taste the wine. And we don't see the deity because we, we are so tethered to the natural that we don't realize that there's something more. There's something deeper. And that should be the word that categorizes everything about your worship. More. God, I want more of you. I want to go deeper with you. I want more intimacy. Can you imagine me saying to my wife, hey, hey, we're almost at 10 years. At this next anniversary, that's as deep as I want to go. That's as intimate as I want to get. So let's just not progress any further beyond this point. That wouldn't really be good, would it? No. Because... The desire for greater depths of intimacy is a product of current intimacy. And if we don't have a desire for greater depths, then we don't have intimacy in the first place. Worship is knowing who God is and ascribing worth to Him. Sacrifice ourselves. But it's also knowing that we can always go further.
We can always go deeper. We can always go beyond. And that posture of worship is that desire and a readiness to go beyond and surrender in the moment. Does that make sense? So church, would you rather be psyche or would you rather be oral? Would you rather be the ones that heard thunder or heard angels? Or would you rather be with Jesus and the disciples and know that it was the voice of the Father speaking? Because those are the options in front of you. But the first thing that you have to do is come to the end of yourself and lay your preferences down. And everything that hinders you from going deeper has to be cut off. It has to be severed. It has to be taken away. Because if it's not, you're going to have a voice that's ghost-like. And you're going to be honoring God with lip service and your heart's going to be somewhere else. I really want something happy to say. Because I don't want to leave it on such a sour note. But the Bible does say this. It says, seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it shall be opened to you. So God does invite us to seek promising that he will never disappoint us in that seeking so are we going to be a church that maintains a posture of worship or are we going to be a church that maintains a posture of man's sovereignty because we can have the guilty thing of being halt between two opinions and saying with our mouths that we want a posture of worship, but in our hearts we want to retain our preference and our sovereignty. Don't do that, church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I surrender it all to you. And that's not just empty words. That's everything. I surrender it all. Every fiber of my being, every ounce of who I am, I surrender it to you. And God, as the pastor of Faith Memorial Church, I surrender this church to you. You be the pastor. You lead, you guide, you direct. And Lord, you take us to those depths that we've never been before. Because God, I don't want to mistake something sacred for something commonplace. I don't want to miss what you're doing or miss our hour of visitation because we're so preoccupied with our preferences and our desires. Lord, don't let us be blind or drunk, or staggering around or illiterate. Let us hear and know. Let us see. Let us experience. Take us, Lord, deeper than we've ever went before. Because, God, truly, you are all we want and all we need. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed, guys. Thanks.